Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 18th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we had uh, two important Supreme Court decisions yesterday, and I am now going to make a dark confession to uh, to our listeners, which is I don't think that any of us uh, read read the decisions, and so we can't really talk about them. We can gloat a little bit on the you know liberal panic about Amy Coney Barrett and how Amy Coney Barrett has demonstrated her uh, you know this whole line about how she was going to. Um, overturn Obamacare, and that's why she was brought to the court, and they raised tens of millions of dollars. Democrats did running against her and talking about this and the danger of, you know, Trump being, re- whatever, however it was. And then, of course, she up she said that Texas uh, and the state attorney general that had, that had gone along with Texas's effort to extirpate the uh, Affordable Care Act uh they did not have standing to do so and therefore upended this, um, you know, preposterous charge that she had been brought on for the specific purpose of doing injury to this specific political, uh, you know, uh, wonderment uh, of, of the Obama administration. There'll, there'll be no mea culpa, by the way, for all the many, you know, hand-wringing think, big think pieces we saw in the mainstream media telling us how she was, you know, the second coming of the apocalypse for all the liberal projects. What we are continuing to see, though, which I think is worth noting, so I've seen a few mentions by legal observers saying on the left saying, you know what, wouldn't this be a really high note for Stephen Breyer to retire on? Isn't it time? Like, they're, they're really pushing the, we want Biden to have a nominee. And I really hope Stephen Breyer digs in his heels and refuses to go, just, just out of spite, even though I know that's not how these decisions are made. But that kind of ghoulish circling of the vultures that happens whenever there's an older liberal on the bench um, drives me a little mad, but I think we've got a couple more years of that to, in store as well. Well, so let's talk about the fantastic bit of trolling. Not that I think that, uh, you know, politicians should troll as a, as a, as a matter of course, but I, I want to praise the trolling that Mitch McConnell did earlier this week, because I think it is very amusing, right? He said that should Republicans, you know, secure the Senate majority in 2022 and should there be an opening on the court in 2023, that he would not allow there to be a vote on Biden's nominee on the court until the election in 2024. Now you may remember, so that this 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 establishes the new precept. The precept was okay. We're not voting on a Supreme Court nomination in an election year so that people can decide, you know, what it is. That was the Merrick Garland thing where he wouldn't let Merrick Garland even like get a hearing. Whatever. Okay. Outrage, screams of outrage, all of that. So now, now he has, now he has pulled this back to say he won't do it for two years. Now, why do I think that this is funny? Here's why I think it's funny. Number one, conservatives now have a majority uh, have an have an unambiguous majority uh, on the court. That was not the case before, in part because Anthony Kennedy was, you know, Anthony Qu- Kennedy. And uh, was a was a completely unreliable vote for them. Basically, kind of you know ended up particularly on social issues as a liberal. Uh, but so so you know the balance of the court really was in question. It's no longer in question. So it doesn't really matter who replaces Breyer if Breyer retires in that sense, because except for the fact that they could replace him with a forty two year old, it'd be like what happened with Clarence Thomas and the guy the person in question could be serving for more than three decades, which will be the case with Clarence Thomas. Uh, Clarence Thomas is in his 30th year um, as a Supreme Court justice. Um, But it doesn't really matter. Okay, so why do I think that this is fantastic trolling? Because it is driving them crazy. So now, having created this idea that Breyer really had to retire, which of course is based on the having to deal with the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had refused to retire during Obama's second term, even though she was over 80, and uh, and then died in office, leaving her seat to be taken over by Amy Coney Barrett. They're like in a panic. 
that Briar, you know, needs to go now before something happens where, you know, he lives long enough so that Republicans uh, can replace him. So McConnell, by saying, you know, I, I'm not going to allow a vote if we win the majority in November 2022, is forcing them to like spend a year and a half beating up on this old man on the Supreme Court, <laughs> pushing him desperately to get the hell back to well, Sarasota. Don't, don't, even, don't call him an old man. Like he's in full, as far as we know, and is certainly in judging by his work on the bench, he's in full uh, uh, existence of his faculties. He is not slowing down. He's actually, you know, he hasn't had any huge health issues that we know of. I mean, the guy's fine. Let him do his job. <laughs> He's 81. He's an old man. He could be having a blue plate special in Boca right now <laughs> if, if you know, under, under other circumstances. So, so this is all a kind of form of psych psyops, you know, just like getting, getting them to focus themselves on a completely extraneous issue that doesn't have an effect on the balance of the court or anything like that. I just think it's, it's hilarious, uh, of course, because he doesn't know if he's going to have a Senate majority, uh, number one. Um, and and uh, we don't know that he'll actually live up to this promise or this guarantee that he won't, won't allow a vote, number two. And, and, uh, and I don't know. I just, I just, think, it's, I just think it's funny. And it, it's now created a new dynamic. Because, of course, I think he's also anticipating the fact that because he made this rule about Garland... Uh, in future, Democrats are my guesses. Should should Bri- should uh, a Republican win in twenty twenty four, and should Breyer retire, somebody else like you know go off the court in twenty twenty five or twenty twenty six, and should Republic should Democrats have the ha- hold majority the majority in the Senate. They will not allow a vote for three years. They will not allow a vote for four years. They will say this is what was sauce for the gander, sauce for the goose. They just didn't want an, a Republican nominee. You know, they didn't want a Democratic nominee in 2016. They're not getting a Republican nominee for four years. Um, so he's sort of anticipating that. Anyway, maybe I'm being like cynical and it's like ridiculous, but I, I just think that it's really funny. Uh should I not think it's funny? Is anyone going to like stand up for like earnestness in politics? Go ahead. Someone, someone play devil's advocate against my, my, my nihilism here. No, not, you know, that's, I, I figured you would be really, am I that uptight? No, but you're, you know, upstanding. Oh, please. Oh, it's, well, it's, it's as a, as a, as humor, it's fine. I don't find that. I, I don't see any impropriety in, the Senate doing exactly what the Senate wants to do when the Senate wants to do it. It's and it that includes tweaking you a little, a little bit. I don't, I don't find that to be a particularly untoward. Um, and I never really gen- fell in with the arguments that uh, anything that Mitch McConnell had did over the course of 2016 or 2020 um, violated some, some norm, some custom, uh, made the culture in the Senate worse than it was. Um, yeah, I never, I never thought any of that had any of the repercussions that the left did. Um, and it's still pretty remarkable the extent to which this is only an activist crusade on the left. Republicans spent 20, 30 years acclimating themselves to the idea um, at, a, at a grassroots level that the courts and appointments on the courts represented a, a break, a check on the legislative ambitions of the left and Democrats tried to work themselves into that over the course of 2016 and 2020, or the Trump presidency really seeing what happened to Merrick Garland. But it didn't take. It still hasn't taken. Um, and they still perceive the bench to be an extension of the, legislati- the legislature, which they has don't. led to this psychological condition where they just really can't wrap their heads around the notion that the legislature is anything other than, uh, or the, the court, the bench, is anything other than a super legislature. So why devote your focus to the bench to the, instead just work your, you know, focus on the legislature. It's, it's the most important branch of government, which they're not wrong about. Um, but they still haven't worked their, their heads around the need for this sort of activism as a check on their ambitions. Um, that's, that's still a conservative predilection and it serves them well. 
I mean, but you know that there's a very good reason for that, which is that um, uh, they do want to use uh, the legislature for social engineering purposes and expansion of government purposes. That's what they want. That's their they they have no hesitation about passing legislation that you know that sort of uh, expands the federal government and expands the reach of the federal government or government in general. Right? Conservatives do have a problem with that. And therefore, being in control of the legislature, when they get in control of legislatures, is is simply a negative virtue because they're not going to do a lot of things. This is sort of pre-Trump, let's say, but they're not going to do a lot of things to advance their agenda because they don't believe in passing lots of more laws. So what they need is a check on the legislature, you know, on legislative activism. But Democrats don't need a check on legislative activism because they believe in legislative activism. And that's and so, you know, the dynamic was always was always off because uh, and we even saw this since sort of 2010, 2011, right? The Tea Party comes in, they get elected, they come to Washington and their agenda is we don't want to do anything for the like the first time in political history. You had a movement that was dedicated to taking over control of the levers of power in Washington, whose goal was stopping things or not doing things. And they ran into the buzzsaw of the illogic of this position because legislatures do things. Now, they can do things more incrementally. They can do things more slowly. But, you know, they have to act. They have to pass budgets. You know, they have to... They have to they have to fund the essential workings of government. And, you know, a lot of these Tea Party guys didn't even want to fund the essential workings of the federal government that we all take for granted. And then you got this like nightmarish showdown in the middle of 2011 where, you know, they want to shut the government down and they don't even know how they're going to restart it. They, they couldn't, you know, both in 2011 and in 2013, there was this, at least in 2013, though, it was incredibly stupid. You know, Ted Cruz had this idea that we would shut the government down until Obama personally decided to kill Obamacare for him, right? At least that was kind of like a goal or an aim. Um, what I remember from 2011 was that conservatives said things like, we need to fight. We have to fight. Let's fight. We need to be fighting. We need to keep this going so we can fight. And it's like, well, what are you fighting? At some point, you know, you have to pay the people who work at the Social Security Administration. You know, you have to pay. There are, you know, how many, I don't know how many federal workers there are, three million? Some, you have to pay. They, they need to get their salaries, you are making it impossible for them to get their salaries and for, you know, the simple things that the federal government sort of has to do to keep America going, including like the military. I don't know. You know, you can't just stop the sp- turn off the spigot. Um, and, and so it was a real problem. That's why conservatives focus so intently on the court, because the court represents the check on legislative ambition that is serious, intellectually thorough, and is the best, the highest level of argument against liberal overreach. Well, and it's also why the the judicial branch, the Supreme Court in particular, continues to be, compared to the presidency and and Congress, held in higher esteem by most Americans. And if there's a level of cynicism that I would welcome seeing in our national conversation about the courts, it would be on the part of average Americans who have to consume every time there's a Republican nominee to the high court this ridiculous drivel as AOC was spouting about Amy Coney Barrett, that she's going to destroy, you know, the ACA. She's, you know, she's terrible. You know, they dressed up as, you know, they said she's going to destroy all rights for women. I mean, the, the kind of hyperbole um, has gotten to the point where they, they've been crying wolf every time there's a nominee, right? The way they treated Kavanaugh was egregious. Then Amy Coney Barrett also treated badly. There's no, they, they seem to have the memory of goldfish when it comes to uh, understanding that if you keep telling people that these nominees are, are going to do terrible things in the name of political partisanship, and then when they, when they issue uh, decisions from the bench, it's proven over and over again that that's not what they're doing. People should stop listening to those activists and the activist members of Congress who make this their you know, Instagram story every time, but it has no substance. It, it, it's not just hyperbole. 
It is, and we've seen this again and again, and we saw it yesterday, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of what a, a conservative justice is. They think it is the mirror image version of uh, uh, left-wing judicial activism. But that is not what being a conservative justice is about. It is, it is being faithful to a kind of reading of the Constitution, even if that means in some cases... Um, uh, uh, okaying policies that, as a conservative, you wouldn't agree with. That right. I countered that yesterday, where there's some genuine, real confusion. This yeah. Obamacare ruling came down. Um, Republican justices sided against the Texas petition, and uh, people on the left were like, "Well, how does this advance conservatism? How is this good for you?" Yeah, and because it's the preservation of the principle right. that the original public meaning of the constitution survives process matters procedure matters that really is an objective for conservatives not a, not a, not a legislative objective not a political objective and that was something that you know Antonin Scalia was uh, an advocate for and, and Amy Coney Barrett was one of his protege and in a subsequent decision yesterday that we got that conservatives are very mad about um which I think, John, you wanted to go into later, but you know, just to transition into that briefly, it was a religious liberty decision that was apparently too narrow, narrowly decided for some, some voices on the right. They wanted it to be expansive to the point where it overturned a decision in Employment Division versus Smith. Employment Division versus Smith was a 1990 case that found that um, the, it was constitutional to deny an individual um, access to, for example, unemployment benefits because they had violated a state prohibition on the use of peyote, even though the use of peyote was was being used in a religious ceremony. Um, they wanted that decision overturned. The majority opinion in that case was written by Antonin Scalia. Right. So this is a very important point because when they say things like conservatives legislate from the bench, I, I don't want to like to, to just like get what about he here, but um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh you know a year ago uh girl boss you know posters her exercise routine kate mckinnon doing an imitation of her you know the heroic what wondrous heroic key figure uh who's been on the court who was on the court for 25 years i think 26 years when did she ever do anything surprising when did she ever make a ruling that was not down the line a kind of partisan ruling? When was she not carrying her, as we used to say in New York, now I'm really dating myself, her Channel 13 PBS tote bag with her decision in the tote bag? However, Thomas, Scalia, Alito, Gorsuch, and now Barrett, all of them, and Barrett and Gorsuch, of course, only having been on the court for a couple of years, have consi- and Scalia, as you say in the case of employment versus Smith, have consistently ruled in ways that break this, the, the notion that they are simply there to uh, reinforce conservative ortho- or Republican orthodoxy. They are not... Orthodox, they may be orthodox conservatives as they understand it. They are not orthodox Republicans. And that is not true of Sotomayor. It is not true of, of Ginsburg. It's not. It, it's a little it, true of Kagan. It's a little yeah. true of Kagan a little bit and Breyer a little bit. Right. But not, uh, And I would but, say, yeah. look, one of the reasons, look, RBG's uh, late in life, late in career, elevation to the status of cultural icon, I think sometimes obscures the fact that although you're right, she wasn't, she didn't do a lot of things that were out of, seemed out of, out of character for her uh, philosophy. She was, she was a proceduralist, right? I mean, you can look at how she, look at her decisions, look at how she came to them. She wasn't, she wasn't an activist on the bench in the way that I think we were, we're discussing activism. But I do think that that weird, that weird cultural enshrinement, I mean, we talk about this with Fauci, but with her, I mean, we have murals in DC. I mean, it, it, it was over the top. And I know this is someone who like, I have a lot of respect for her, but it was, it was, I think that started to really addle the minds of these activists and think that like you shouldn't have that kind of sense of heroism of someone who's a public servant. She still she was still a public servant. But what was right. she famous for? What was the cult of personality around her for? Now this is a generalization of anybody whose career spans the quarter century, of course. But nevertheless, her what her activist base that really you know anointed her loved were her dissents. 
was the fact that she was standing That's athwart right. the majority opinion, the concurring opinions. She was she was she was a voicing the the objections of the side that lost the argument, which has a, a pernicious psychological effect if you perceive yourself to be constantly losing, heroically losing, martyring yourself, nevertheless losing. Um, that's that was the 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 kernel the 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 you know the nucleus around which this cult formed, um, which which probably is an underexplored aspect of that phenomenon. Although to be fair. Scalia was famous for his dissents. The most famous Supreme Court decision ever written, probably, and it absolutely applies to the conservative right. Right, I mean, the pernicious psychological effect of perceiving yourself to be constantly losing. Right, no, but in this case, like uh, Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson is probably the most famous. I mean, or one of the three or four most famous Supreme Court decisions ever written. It's easy to write a famous dissent. You know why? And this is actually exposed in the Philadelphia uh, Charities, Catholic Charities case that is the second case that was released. Because cobbling together the argument that the majority can agree on creates a consensus document that will often be have its intellectual sales trimmed in order to garner the greatest, the largest amount of support or to tilt decision to 5-4. This decision was 9-0. It's a whole other conversation to have, but but you're not writing your own opinion. You are writing a consensus opinion on 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 how to get how you got to having a majority agree to this uh agree in the largest sense to, you know, whatever the decision is. And then you have to reflect the consensus of that majority, and it may be intellectually inconsistent. So, in that, in the in the case of the, the Catholic uh, Adoption Agency and Philadelphia, uh, there were there was a, a con- concurrent there were concurrences that attacked the decision. This is kind of weird. So, there's there are concurrences, one by Alito. Uh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, which said, we really wanted this to go further. We wanted it to overturn Smith, the one that, 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 uh, that, um, I, by the way, again, I'm going to say this, I'm basing this entirely on news stories. Didn't read the decisions. I usually do, but I didn't yesterday. Uh, we wanted to overturn this and we didn't. And the decision is cowardly, or the decision is incomplete, and it's based on a will of the wisp thing that will not help establish jurisprudential the jurisprudential grounds for how to deal with issues like this going forward. We have provided no guide map to lower courts on what to do in cases that are redolent of this, which is part of the purpose of a Supreme Court decision. Of course, it is to narrowly focus on the case at hand, but also to provide intellectual guidance on where to go with cases like this. And then there's another concurrence, this one by Kavanaugh and Barrett, that is essentially, if I understand this, a kind of attack on the more conservative concurrence that supports the idea of moving incrementally in this direction. What's interesting about this? So uh, they're making each of them, each of these, concurrences, which is not the majority opinion, are making very interesting intellectual arguments that almost by definition, the majority cannot make. And that's why dissents are so powerful, because it's Antonin Scalia saying, this is horrible, this is disgusting, how dare you, (laughs) whatever it is, wherever he wants to go with it, and then maybe somebody else will sign on, Thomas would have signed on or something like that. But he was arguing his own view. It's a, it's an op-ed. It's like a, it's a, you know, it's a principled statement of purpose that does not have any politics behind it. But it, it's also, uh, it, we should also uh, give uh, respect where it's due to the extreme magic, in a way that that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has has uh, achieved here. You know, his goal does seem to be to get get away from the split uh, decisions, get more towards majority decisions to show the court acting as one in in bringing down decisions that aren't five four, but but have more people uh, 
uh, on each side. And that, I mean, that's actually really hard to do. That's an act of leadership. He talked about John Marshall being his hero when he was when he was first nominated. He has shown a way, and he angers conservatives all the time doing this, but he cares about the institution of the court. And one of the ways he's trying to maintain its credibility is to show exactly, as you say, John, these kinds of decisions where you're, you're getting a lot of different uh, legal arguments to agree. And in a weird way, that's what we wish Congress would do with large sweeping pieces of legislation, like compromise on some of the extremes to get you know more people on board. But I, I, I really think he's been kind of masterful in how he's rallied his, his uh, justices to, to come to some agreement on these really difficult cases. Having said that, you can never mention John Roberts' name without mentioning mentioning the single most factitious Supreme Court decision yes, know, practically ever issued <laughs> in the Obamacare case where he said it was a tax on page right. 12 and that it wasn't a tax on page 35. Uh, it is, it is uh, one of the most intellectually egregious uh, documents ever produced in the United States of America, and he uh, w- should be shamed forever for having produced it, um, notwithstanding his clear political skills and this and this deep institutional commitment to the notion that if the Supreme Court can show consensus, it can help drain some of the rage and horror of our current political life. And and in in that sense, you know, th- this is a very interesting conversation, right? The conservatives on the court say this decision could have been 6-3. We didn't need the liberals. What we needed was a statement of purpose about uh, the interference, government's interference with religious liberty. Uh, we, we took a wrong turn in, in with the Smith case in 19, you know, 30 years ago. We need to get ourselves back on track. And if the liberals won't agree, tough. And uh, then you get the other concurrence that says, you know, it's pretty good that the liberals agreed, um, but we really do need to, this can't be the be all and end all of it. And then you get the 9-0 decision that finds in the narrow case of the Catholic charity, the Catholic adoption efforts in Philadelphia, that they were, that their religious liberty was, was violated and that that, that specific thing that happened needs to stop without much uh you know broader reflection and that that's a pretty interesting kind of expression of the three paths that the this could all go um uh not that i have any idea what that means i mean you know where where it's going to go from here well, it, it does it does suggest some interesting um possibilities if for example the court takes up affirmative action again in the near future right. i mean there are a lot yeah. of really complicated difficult issues for which decades ago we made a lot of poor policy decisions and now we're we're now we're seeing legal challenges right. to those well that's what's interesting cuz again let's talk about conservatives in the court right so uh, affirmative action was saved in 2003 by one justice that was Sandra Day O'Connor who wanted it to be temporary still who said right who said maybe another maybe another 10 15 years you can you can use race as a as a counting factor and then it should stop but what's important about that, and then, of course, we have abortion, and that was the result of one guy, that was Anthony Kennedy, who ruled in favor of the majority in the Casey case in 1992 or 1993. Um, uh, note that uh, these uh, essentially liberal arguments were preserved by conservative justices. What I'm going to go back to is I'm going to hold my breath until a liberal justice uh, does something comparable to what Kennedy and O'Connor and Souter, you know, the, what, what, what we cynics on the right have always called growing an office that they, they wanted to get the praise from the New York times editorial page. So they went that way. But even if you think that that's too nihilistic, uh, that they were sufficiently heterodox in their own approach to ideas that they, you know, largely seem to be aligned with that they could rule against them. And that's where the question is, when does that happen for the liberals on the court? Maybe it happened yesterday. Maybe you can say that's what happened in the in the in the Catholic case about uh, gay adoptions. Or maybe not. Uh, but that's that's where that goes. And uh, if you want heterodoxy, if you want conservative heterodoxy, one great place to look for it 
is in DividendCafe.com, that daily newsletter produced by David Bonson and our friends at the Bonson Group, that $3 billion financial management services firm by Coastal, both in California and New York. Uh, David and his colleagues, uh, you know, are, 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 uh, take very seriously their, their, their charge to steward husband and, and, uh, and, and bring new profits to their investors and the people whom, whose money they manage. And so David provides them with a daily, he provides them and you with a daily uh, reckoning and understanding of the markets. And he is right now, he is the leading heterodox voice uh, when it comes to questions of the dangers of inflation. You heard him on this podcast two weeks ago saying, the threat to the United States is not inflation, it is deflation. The threat is not Weimar Germany, it's Japan from... 1990 to 2020 and that he and he marshals a lot of evidence and a lot of interesting details uh to 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 make this a very important uh, argument the jury's out obviously well we, we're not gonna we're not gonna know for a couple of years who's right and who's wrong in this case but dividend cafe is the place to go if you need to hear this argument and you do need to hear this argument because um Everybody is kind of, including liberals, are circling around it. They'll just say, oh, no, the inflation is transitory. Conservatives are saying the inflation is a huge 1970s-like threat. Uh, David's saying you are looking in the wrong place, and you are therefore going to make mistakes as you invest, and you're going to make mistakes as you understand American politics. Go to DividendCafe.com, subscribe, get it in your mailbox every night. Uh, during the week, uh, you will thank me. It is uh, it is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, Donald Trump has an op-ed in Real Clear Politics this morning. Uh, it just sounds so like him. I mean, you can imagine him sitting with his quill, writing a a, a sentence uh, uh, like this. Um, for decades, the America-blaming left has been relentlessly pushing a vision of America that casts our history, culture, traditions, and founding documents in the most negative possible light. Yet in recent years, this deeply unnatural effort has progressed from telling children that their history is evil to telling Americans that they are evil. Now, I, I, I agree with this. Uh, it's a little like, uh, you know, uh, Cyrano. Like, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, a speechwriter, and I was a speechwriter and a ghostwriter in, in, in my time, uh, you're supposed to uh, kind of like sound like the person that you're uh, that you're uh, writing for, um, and uh, this doesn't <laughs> sound like Trump at all. There's you're no you. Stephen but... Miller couldn't place an op-ed. <laughs> what you're saying? Stephen Miller couldn't place an op-ed if he wanted to. Something like that. Anyway, it lacks I, belligerence. I, let's say I, that. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, in 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 Cyrano, you know, the tongue-tied the tongue-tied guy who's trying to court. The beautiful Roxanne stands under her window, and and the most mellifluous words are are sung up to her in you know in 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 perfect uh, uh, iambic pentameter. Uh, but of course, it's not him; it's Cyrano. And I wouldn't <laughs> call this perfect iambic pentameter, nor is it romantic, seductive writing. But it just doesn't sound like Trump. However, uh, can I? I'm just going to intervene here briefly because there, there it is a little irritating. Just on an egotistical level, it offends that those of us who've been railing against these ideas for years in book form ahem, um, are, you know, taking a backseat to some activists who have who have really capitalized on the backlash against CRT. Good for them. The backlash is here. It's ever present, ev- ev- evinced perhaps by the best Chiron I think I've ever seen, which was on. Um, yesterday's Chris Hayes show talking about the backlash uh, to CRT teaching uh, critical race theory in schools. And the Chiron read fixation with race. (laughs) The the right is fixated with race. The gaslighting that we're being privy to is evidence of the efficacy of this movement. And it is a grassroots movement. You have people like MFA media, uh, media matters rather, um, attacking Fox News for bringing on people going after the teaching of this sort of thing in school saying, you know, what they're, they're introduced as moms. Well, they're also Republican activists suggesting that this is all, you know, AstroTurf. It's not, not a real organized uh, grassroots backlash. Um, 
but they're kidding themselves. They're trying to kid themselves. I don't think they actually genuinely believe it. It's just that they had this conversation within this very close circle. They came to a consensus agreement and raced to implement their consensus agreement before they had any public input. And once they had public input, they realized that their preferences weren't as popular as ne- as they thought they would be. So now they're not like now because they're not popular, they have to be necessary. Well, and this is where the left uh, elite left media bubble, elite left intellectual bubble is going to be very harmful politically. We saw it with crime um, and the defund the police movement in the last election. This is really I live in a very, very blue city. <laughs> I am, you know, D.C. is a very liberal place. My kids are in the public school system. It's a very liberal public school system in terms of curriculum. They have brought home their 1619 sponsored oppression worksheets, as we call them. And I have heard, especially with distance learning this year, I have heard teachers shut down conversations by saying things like, oh, well, that's an example of structural racism. And no, no kid's going to raise his or her hand to fight that. They know already as high schoolers. I see in Loudoun County, Virginia, and all the even the very liberal suburbs um, in in this area, liberal parents, parents who are liberal but not anti-racist progressives, really troubled by this. And when you hear the liberal elite media reaction to their concerns, as you just are a Trump supporting crazy, you know, uh, coke funded uh, shill, they get upset because then they don't feel like they have a political voice. So they go in front of a school board and they say, this is crazy. Like, we don't like this. This is not what we think our kids should be learning. They do not have a political voice in the Democratic Party if if the progressive elite in that party is telling them that they're shills for Republicans. That this is an eerie parallel to 2009. So when in 2009... The grassroots movement started against the expansion of government represented by Obama, which was then the most rapid infusion of federal dollars into the private economy and the most uh, significant effort to take over swaths of the private economy uh, in in 60, uh, 70 years, uh, both with uh, the partial nationalization of the automobile industry uh, the proposals for that eventually became Obamacare, and 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 TARP and TALF and their 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 effects on on the economy and and and, and uh, the regulatory stuff in in Dodd Frank, all of which happened later, but we're all in chrysalis, like in early two thousand nine. This uh, these grassroots objections started being levied, and they were harnessed and discussed in right wing media and talk radio and all of that. And the general approach of 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 in, inside the liberal bubble was to say, a it doesn't matter, b they're obsessing over nothing, c they have no standing to talk about this because they've destroyed everything with their you know George W. Bush economy, and d they're all being manipulated by billionaires who are using them as fodder, um, and they and they seduced themselves into believing that what was happening wasn't happening and that a new form of American pol- grassroots American politics hadn't wasn't forming uh, while it was forming. And then s- 16 months later, they lose 63 seats in the House and o- Barack Obama looked like he had been punched in the stomach the next day when he said it was a shellacking. And all of the data, by the way, all of the hard data that were being collected at the time, everyone talks about how Republicans want to, you know, are, are, are the poll on skewers. From basically, we're not there yet, but, you know, from basically like the beginning of 2010 until, until November of 2010, all the polling said that people wanted Republicans to take control of the House or Senate or, you know, people preferred by 15, 14, 15, 16 points. And Democrats just went on, passed Obamacare, did this, did that. Joe Biden said it's a big effing deal, yada, yada, yada. They had no feeling for how powerful this response was. Here's where this is a little different, and it it goes to what Christine is talking about. Well-educated liberal parents in the thought industry all over the place are freaked out by what is going on in their schools. And I'm not just talking about the Loudoun County Public Schools. I'm not talking about the D.C. Public Schools. I'm talking about 
private schools. I'm talking about the New York City private. I'm talking about the LA private schools. It is not just three or four conservative parents in a liberal school body who are having this. We know this because we know George Packer is one of these people. We know this because uh, Lucinda Rosenfeld, who is married to John Cassidy, who is a very left-wing economics correspondent for The New Yorker, is one of these people because she talks about it on Twitter. We know that there are people in the thought-leading left who themselves went to school, read Shakespeare, you know, were educated in the classics and, you know, this and that and the other thing. And they're all good liberals and they support Black Lives Matter and they think that, you know, America has to deal with its stain. And they don't want their children's education destroyed or taken over by ahistorical or anti-historical propaganda. And it's happening before their eyes. And they are not going to vote Republican. They are not going to be part of this vanguard movement that I'm talking about. But they may be able to warn. They may be an early warning system for the left that was not present in 2009 and 2010 on economic matters and matters of the size of government because this is their children. And what is the big difference between right-wingers and left-wingers increasingly in the United States? It's not yet the biggest difference, but it's huge. Right-wingers have more kids. Uh, Liberals and Democrats are much more likely to be singletons, to be either not yet married or never married and often never have kids and haven't had kids. And so they are not going to have this feeling because they don't care about the schools. They don't, they don't have any skin in the game. A lot of them don't have any skin in the game. This is not their world. This is not their field. They don't care. But, and this is the other big but, do they like going to struggle sessions at their workplaces? Do they like being told that they're, you know, because here's the argument, right? It's like, oh, great. We're going to we'll all have be retrained, right? We're all going to. It's terrible structural. I'm privileged. I'm a person of privilege. It's really terrible. I agree. It's bad. And, you know, I agree. And so I'm showing my virtue by saying I agree. And then the line is, oh, no. That's nowhere near enough. That's not enough. Agreeing. You think that's enough? No. You got to come in and we've got to do an exercise where we prove to you that even as you're agreeing, you are a racist dominated by racial feelings, dominated by en- dominated by an unconscious desire to suppress minorities and take them down. Nobody wants to believe that about themselves, particularly since it's, of course, not true. There's another very important aspect of this backlash, um, and it's not important because it's um, so great in size, but because it's much harder to ignore. And that is those parents of minority kids who are what, what they're the message that they object to that their kids are getting is you can't succeed in this country um, because of systematic structural racism Um this was exemplified, you know, so beautifully by the viral TikTok video of the of the African American father and his kid, um, who they he made this great statement with his daughter against um, uh, critical race theory and um, how it hems in uh, her horizons. Um, so they have this, you know, as 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 good a case as as any white parent who doesn't want their kid thinking that they're evil. They have the, a perfectly equal case of of not wanting their kid to hear that they can't make it in this country. They, they have a better they case. Have a better I think. Case. I think exactly yeah, because right. yeah, the and, idea that it's white people who will grant you this by doing the things that the critical race theorists say they must is so condescending. I totally agree. It's such an important point. And and we have we have historical evidence of this, which is the charter school movement. Take the New York City, or take a, a lot of these cities. Who is it who benefits from good charter school systems? Minority kids who are in these horrible, terrible schools and they can't afford to get their kids to private schools or whatever. And, you know, when Bill de Blasio, uh, in a fit of, you know, drug-addled peak when he becomes mayor because he didn't like Eva Moskowitz, 
who ran who runs the Success Academy char- uh, schools uh, in New York uh, because they had fought when they were in the city council together. Decides he's going to do whatever he can to shut down charter schools or shut down their schools. Thirty thousand people marched on Albany. Like it, this was no joke. Like there was a march on Albany, which actually the state capital controls school funding in in that way, and basically. Andrew Cuomo, who of course hates Bill de Blasio, sort of took one look at this and took one look at Blasio and took one look at at this movement and said, "I'm going with them. Uh, I, I'm not going. You know, th- this is a gimme. Uh, these are, you know, these are uh, struggling minority parents who want their kids to get a good education versus uh, Mr. Bong, the mayor. Uh, you know, d- sitting cross legged at two thirty in the afternoon." you know, listening to fish. Uh, and, and uh, that's where I'm going with this. And, and, and the charter school, this, the, the war on the charter schools that de Blasio started uh, went belly up. Um, and, and, and so there are, and this happens all over the country in, in different places. Like you can't do this to people. People who have skin in the game are not going to stand still for having their kids' futures destroyed. And and so um I don't know where this is going. It feels like an un, you know, like a like a runaway train that is unstoppable. But I don't think it's unstoppable. I don't understand how it stopped. I don't understand what the me- methodologies are that stop it. And you know, so far uh, the efforts to kind of do it from above through state legislative actions seem ill-advised and constitutionally questionable. Some of them, some of some them, of some them. of them, not. Right. Um, the com- uh, how does any political coalition that's beholden to an idea that has captured its activist base, <clears throat> but is fundamentally conspiratorial or addle-minded? How do they how do they jettison that idea? They are they're convinced that it's electorally disastrous for them to hold on to this right. idea that their activists are a detriment to their to their prime directive, which is securing political power. The complicating thing here that makes us not like 2009 is in 2009 we were talking about federal initiatives. So a, a backlash against federal lawmakers was a natural expression of hostility toward their ambitions. Here this is much more local very local, municipal, it's definitely not federal, municipal level. And in the municipal level, for example, in the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth, um, early May, there was a a mayoral election and local elections that hinged on this issue. And the uh, pro-CRT side of this thing got absolutely trounced. It was a 70, 30% election. But we don't see that in the two gubernatorial elections this year in New Jersey and Virginia. We haven't yet, at least. And um, I don't think we will because it is so municipal education decisions. We may. It's very hard to tell. And that's where we should get back to the Trump op-ed. But before we get to the Trump op-ed, I want to talk to you guys about the X chair. As my my friends here on this uh, Squadcast video phone thing can see, I am sitting in an X chair right now. That luxury supercar of office chairs... With its dynamic variable lumbar support, offering unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, and that new XHMT technology that provides heat and massage therapy right to my core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy with four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology. So instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, here I am sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X-Chair difference until you feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. And it's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 xchair X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, so Donald Trump op-ed, he's running. Okay, go. He's running. He's going to run in 2024. Why does anybody think he's not going to run in 2024? Anybody who thinks he's not running in 2024 is expressing a wish, not a, not a, not a, not a dispassionate analysis of what's going to happen in America over the next three years. So Don Jr. came out the other day and said that, you know, if his father didn't run, Ron DeSantis is the natural heir to this empire, his political empire. 
um, which left everybody being like, hmm, well, I don't know. I mean, why would he say something like that in the event that his father had this, this sort of plan? I share your assessment. I don't think it's hard to argue against it, but at least they introduced an element of mystery around it there. I, I think that, no, but that, I'm sorry, that's a reality television trick. He's introducing something that people could argue and wonder and read the tea leaves over because it keeps you interested in him, ultimately. I'm cynical about that, though. Um, DeSantis is the natural Veep pick. Uh-huh. Okay. That, right, because, of course, Trump only runs one term. He really does then only run one term. Okay, but anyway, who had the best analysis of that? Is our friend Allah Pundit. Allah Pundit had this fantastic quick thing where he said, Trump says he's not running. DeSantis clears the field. No one runs against DeSantis. It's like, you know, uh, late January. Trump is annoyed because everybody's saying DeSantis is like Trump, but he's somebody a lot of people can support and he can do this. He's got that look liberal. His, his approval rating in Florida is so high. And then Trump gets back in the race and becomes the nominee and basically screws DeSantis. So Trump so that, Kanye's yeah. DeSantis, like, like Kanye did to yeah. Taylor Swift. At the, yeah, okay. That, yeah. that I no. believe. No, I just think that's an absolutely like it's like R- Ross Perot. Like Ross Perot's like I'm quitting. No, I'm back. No, I'm in. No, I'm not. No, I'm in. like that. Um, he is running. Why wouldn't he run? Can anybody tell me why he wouldn't run? A sense of propriety. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he's old. He, he's not. He's not young. It depends on you know. He's 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 old. Um, but and toxic to a the he large. He would percentage. be younger than Biden. It's true. Was the day if he were inaugurated on January twentieth, twenty twenty five, he would be younger than Biden was on January twentieth, twenty twenty one. And so, having yes, if he if he runs, and I agree, he will run. Uh, it would mean that he has he had survived years of these. Um, you know, um, suspected lawsuits that are supposed to bring him down, supposed to bring his country down. So he he would have another kind of um, victory claim under his belt, right? Mm-hmm. They tried to get me when I was in office. They tried to get me when I wasn't in office. Here I am. Don't believe any of it, folks. I'm back. Yeah. Do you guys remember the SNL skit the week that um, impeachment lost in 1999? Uh so this was the skit. It's a Clinton Rose Garden press conference. It's Daryl Hammond as Clinton. Walks out of the doors of the Oval Office, walks into the Rose Garden. He stands in front of the microphone and he says, I am bulletproof. And then he walks away. And that's the entire thing. And Abe is, Abe is right. He's like, you came at me. You impeached me twice. You said I'm destroying democracy. You said this. You said that. Go ahead. Take another shot. Now, there are things that could derail him. I mean, he could get indicted and convicted. That's why I say if he uh, runs. In New York. Yeah. I mean, mean, who knows? Like, it's a long time. Uh, uh, Right now, he is – right now, he is going to run for president. All things being equal, and we don't know what they are, but all things being equal, he'll run for you're Christine, you're saying Stephen Breyer is in the is, you know, he's in the prime of his life. Uh, he's not in the prime. <laughs> you know what I mean. Whatever. Whatever. Yeah, but anyway. running, running for president and running the country is a is a very different task set and skill uh, requirement anyway. than sitting on the bench. I do not want him to run. I do not want him to be the Republican nominee. I do not want him to be president again. I didn't want him to be president the first time, and I don't want this. So I'm just saying I think I should get a little credit for being willing to allow my political analysis to outweigh my personal predilections and choices. The really interesting question, and it really does go to how politics works in the United States now, is, of course, this has never really happened before. I mean, yeah, it happened, you know, uh, it was a Grover Cleveland, right? Or who was it who ran? Right. Um, but it's never really happened before. And it's also never really happened that somebody just walked into a nomination without 
much, you know, conflict. Uh, maybe Al Gore. I mean, because he got a little bit of a challenge from Bill Bradley, but uh, but not much else. And then, of course, Hillary twice tried to clear the field and screwed herself. If she hadn't tried to clear the field and there had been more candidates in 2008, in, in the 2008 primaries besides Obama, the anti-Hillary vote could have split and fractured and she could have won the nomination, which is sort of what happened in 2016. But again, she tried to clear the field and Bernie nearly beat her. So th- this is a weird circumstance where Will Trump really, if he runs, will he run unopposed? I kind of figure he'll run unopposed. No, but see, this is a, well, if he does, that's a real shame on the Republican Party, because this could be a, this a real primary where DeSantis fought it out with Trump would be very cleansing for the Republican Party, because I actually try to have a little more faith in the Republican voters, despite the last few years, and think that if, if you had that comparison you would go with the person who's a, who's not Trump. Now, maybe that maybe I'm wrong because Trump's machine and his personality, et cetera, et cetera. But a, a true battle at the that's what the primaries are for. And, and why know, not let him do it, it out? You know, sure. Well, it's not our choice. It would be Ron right. DeSantis's choice. Right. You know, it would be it would be what the polling says. It would be what the what the you know, what the activist class says. Um uh, you know, would we want there to be a race in which someone could beat Trump fair and square? Sure. But they've got to run against him, you know? And uh and and uh that would be you know, that would and then you know, who'll run against him is, you know, George Conway. You know, you'll get one of these like, oh really? I mean it's really really, you know, he's very right wing, he's very pro life. I mean, you'll get some bizarre, you know, somebody that you know, the Lincoln Project supports uh, who will get, you know, approximately, you know, three votes. Evan McMullen will be back as as the Republican challenger or something like that. Um, guys, I just let me just ask you, does it make sense that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech juggernauts. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet, sadly. Every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined, but when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers, and it encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So easy to use. You download the app on your phone and computer, you tap one button, and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash commentary to get an extra, to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Uh, beautiful summer weekend. I guess summer uh, officially, does it, uh, we're, we're approaching the, uh, we're approaching the, uh, the equinox uh, in a couple of days. Anybody got any, Wondrous summer plan. I, you know, it's like we never do anything. That's the problem with us intellectuals. We just, you know, sit around and read and stuff. Well, speak uh, for yourself. What are you going to do? What are I, you going to do? I'm going to take my kids to a national park, the uh, Acadia National Park in Maine, for a few weeks later in the summer. And uh, I know that's later in the summer. I'm talking about this weekend. This weekend. Oh, I'm doing Aikido. That's what I do on the See, weekend. There you go. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm going to a ball game this evening. Really? Nice. You the Yankees? No, no. I live about a mile away from a, a, a oh. AAA field, oh. one of the Yankees farm teams. The Associated Press has a poll out this, this morning. Yes. Um, which talks about the activities that you're doing and how people are emerging from the pandemic. There are a couple of numbers here that I just wanted to briefly introduce. I know we're going long, but they're very interesting. Um in February, 65% of people said they were still wearing a mask around people outside their house. Today, it is 37%, much lower. That's for your Twitter isn't real files. Um, sadly, most people who aren't going to get the vaccine aren't going to get the vaccine. 46% of Americans who say they're not vaccinated yet will never be vaccinated. 
another 30% say there probably won't be. So we're approaching the vaccine wall. But most of this country has been vaccinated, and most of this country is going out maskless, and most of this country is doing everything they want to do. Um, over 50% of the public, between and, and it's risen by double digits across the board between May and June, have visited friends or family, gone shopping in person for non-essential items, gone out to a bar or restaurant, traveled, exercised at a gym or studio, gone to a movie theater concert or theater, or attended a sporting event. And today, I get my seventh out of seven. Fantastic. Yesterday, I spent yes. yesterday. I spent my first full day doing various things around the city. Never once put on a mask. Never, never to go to a store. I got my hair cut. Didn't put on a mask. Didn't put on a mask in my building. Didn't put on a mask at a restaurant. Mask free day. Um, there was also an incredible um, study released yesterday about the efficacy of the Moderna vaccine. For all, for all we know, it, it applies to the Pfizer too. Um, which shows that um, one shot, just the, after the first shot, showed a 95% effectiveness against um, contracting COVID. Just one. Right. So it makes sense that, that the numbers yeah. have dropped as dramatically as they have. Uh, I want to read you just one tweet, um, just, to, just, to, just to be the... the, the the skunk at the fish, whatever. I was about to say the skunk at the fishbowl, but that's that's absolutely wrong, right? It's not the, the, it's the skunk, skunk at the, at garden, the garden party. party yes. Right. Well, what's at the fishbowl? I can't even remember. The, okay. the, the, the half-cooked bat at the wet market. The algae <laughs> right. in the fishbowl. Okay. <laughs> okay. I like that one. So th- this, is, this is a tweet by a housing attorney in Andover, Massachusetts. Her name is Dara. I don't know what her last name is. She has 20,000 followers. So she's a housing attorney. So you can figure out what her politics are from being a housing, affordable housing attorney. Excuse me. Yale NYU Law. Okay. Uh, She, her. Elect women. This is in her Twitter bio. So here's what she tweeted yesterday. And I, I don't think it's a joke. I forgot how exhausting normal life is. I kind of miss lockdown. Anyone else? <sighs> Question mark. Um, and she got a lot of anyone else's. She got a lot of anyone else's. So let's let's discuss um, the fact that uh, we're talking about the vaccine hesitant and and I've been attacking them and we've been getting emails all week about how I'm wrong to attack people for not wanting to get the vaccine all of whom i'm about to accuse of being sissies who are afraid of uh, of needles because you're just afraid of needles you hear me if you don't want to get the vaccine you know it's because you're afraid of needles get over it anyway we attack them i'm gonna we're gonna get a lot of mail for that <laughs> um you attack them and uh, and that's fine um uh, these people are worse dara and her friends are worse uh, because what they want is a, uh, they want society to be radically uh, reformed uh, around the idea that um, uh, their lives uh, as, as she, her affording affordable housing, uh, you know, um, uh, over-educated podcasting uh, liberals are just too hard. I miss lockdown. Life is too hard for me. With my two degrees and my, you know, position, you know, in wanting to elect women and all of that, my life is too hard. Somehow, uh, in this, the world of these people who love Marxian style analyses of the oppressions of capitalism and all of that, they seem to have forgotten or neglected the fact that the thing that Noah harped on for months and months and months, which is that our lockdown lives were made possible by people who simply couldn't afford to live in lockdown. Uh, the ultimate privilege, the ultimate, it's not exactly white privilege, the ultimate privilege is to wander around saying, I miss lockdown because I could just get black and brown people to deliver things to my door while they, you know, while they worked two jobs and tried to keep food on the table uh, because they could do no other. And I sat inside 
and had little neurotic moments of, you know, fear. You know, the hell with you people. Since I've since I've been saying this about the other people, and now we're back on brand. <laughs> yeah, since I've been saying since I've been saying it about the the people who refuse to get vaccinated, I'm sure that Dara is vaccinated, and uh, the hell with her. And with that, uh, should we end on a higher note? That's a, like it's a low note to end on. No, it sandwiches this podcast perfectly. We began with trolling, and we end with trolling. <laughs> Fair enough. So have a have a trolley weekend for Abe Christina Noam John Pot Keep the camel burning.